everybody, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And I'm telling you, I'm so happy and proud to have an opportunity to talk to our guest today. This is a guest who I got to say is really more a family to me. Back in 2011, this young man traveled to Iran to visit his aging grandmother. Shortly before he was scheduled to return to the United States, he was arrested and taken hostage by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. He was at one time sentenced to death and was finally released in January 26th of 2016, nearly after five years in custody. He's recently written a memoir that he's released, and that memoir that we hold it up is called Crossfire, you know, Trapped in the U.S.-Iran Covert War. Please welcome my brother and friend, Amir Hekmati, to the show. Amir, thank you so much for being here, sir. Montel, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here and talking to you, and thank you for the kind words. Uh, thank you for everything you did to bring me home. I think your viewers should all know all the efforts that, uh, you know, you, you took to bring me home and I can't thank you enough. It's great to be speaking to you and I consider you a friend and a brother as well. Absolutely, sir. I mean, well, you know, it's a work of a lot of people who really literally, uh, you know, wouldn't give up and couldn't give up and didn't want to give up to make sure they got, we got you home because I am one of those people that firmly believe in the fact that, we leave no man behind, and that should be done for any service member. For those people who are just tuning in and don't know your history, let's go back. You are American-born, Iranian lineage, but American citizen, and you served in our U.S. military in the United States Marine Corps, did you not? I did. Uh, so, you know, a little history as well. My father uh, left uh, in 79 and revolution, came here, did his doctorate, and uh you know, the, the Iran-Iraq war started, took off. So going back to Iran wasn't really an option, especially under that regime. And uh, yeah, I was born in Phoenix, Arizona and grew up in Arizona, then moved to Michigan where my dad uh, took up a professorship there at the university and microbiology. And, uh, you know, I was always just in competitive sports and, uh, you know, the values of being a Marine and you know, competitiveness, serving your country and fighting for a greater cause just really appealed to me. I was a competitive uh, ice hockey player in high school. So senior year, the recruiters came in as they do every year. And, you know, we usually pick out the uh, the guys who are in competitive sports. And I just really liked their uniforms and everything that they stood for. And, you know, against my parents' wishes, my dad actually wanted me to go to medical school and follow his steps. Um, I joined the Corps and, you know, Probably served four years, combat veteran OIF uh, two in Ramadi, Iraq, and it was a great experience. Yeah, and I mean, I'm going to make sure we get this straight so people understand: you are an American citizen, born in the United States of America, of America, with a U.S. passport. You are an American citizen, and you chose to serve in our U.S. military. Which, you know, even as we look at today, there are so many people who are elected in, in political office across the board who, you know, shirked their responsibility and wouldn't put a uniform, but you chose and made that decision after graduating high school to enlist in the Marine Corps. 100%. I mean, I think just, you know, the life that we had growing up and then the, the benefits of being an American citizen growing up. So we just felt indebted. I mean, I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to, uh, you know, be a part of the best of the best, as you were. And, uh, you know, that's what led me to start this journey a month uh, before 9-11. So it was definitely an eventful uh, four years of service, but 
I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, let's talk, well, let's say if you can, without giving out any classified information, let's talk a little bit about your four years of service. You were an interpreter for a while, right? Well, so uh, in boot camp, actually, 9-11 happened. So I, I actually enlisted a month prior, and I remember, you know, the base went on lockdown. We went to, you know, threat level increase, armed guards everywhere, and they started asking um, who here speaks a foreign language, specifically Farsi, Arabic, languages that were going to be in, in high demand. Um, going forward, I raised my hand and went down and took a test. I had initially signed up to be a infantryman. I wanted to, you know, get the real experience in combat arms, and I, I enlisted as an 0311 rifleman. Um, because I spoke Farsi growing up and could read and write, uh, a sergeant major actually convinced me to go to language school in Monterey. They were recruiting. So I went to a defense language institute and learned Arabic. I did a 63 week course there. I'd already had a, you know, Farsi growing up and um, just the requirements for the uh, people with those language abilities was so high. We were going to places like Iraq and Afghanistan without the required, you know, interpreters. So, so they sent me to there and then I, and then I actually joined school of infantry, went through combat arms training and deployed with my, with my, uh, with my unit, second battalion, fourth Marine in uh, 2003. And when you deployed, you deployed to Iraq? I deployed to Aramadi, Iraq, uh, 2-4. Uh, for those who are not familiar, it's in the Sunni Triangle, about an hour from Fallujah. And um, it was a Saddam Ath Party stronghold. So there was a lot of activity there. Um, and uh, the population there was not taking our presence uh, very well. So it was definitely, I was only one of two interpreters, one of two uh, people with language ability who also, you know, had trained uh, as an infantryman and, and uh, could speak English really well. So I was picked up immediately by the battalion commander. I served uh, as his uh, you know, personal uh, linguist. I also worked with all kinds of other entities in Iraq supporting them with, uh, with, with language sports. So, so it was, uh, I, I didn't sleep three hours continuously, you know, the entire, uh, almost 10 months deployment. Uh, so I was definitely very used to it. at 21 years old. It was a very, very big responsibility, but, um, you know, I think we, 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 you know, we got a lot and got a lot done there and, um, the unit definitely needed a guy like me. So I was, I was happy to be able to fulfill that role. It was, it was definitely an honor. That's so good. That's so good. So then you came back and ended up transitioning out, right? You got out, honorable discharge. Yeah. So the last six months or so prior to my uh, discharge, honorable, of course, uh, I was made the um, language and cultural training officer for First Marine Division. This is sort of a new department that was set up to teach deploying Marine officers and enlisted before deployment, just the basics. We were sending guys over there who didn't even know how to say hello in, in the local language, you didn't understand basic cultural facts. So you know, I set up that curriculum from scratch and a program manager at DARPA, which is a research agency at the Pentagon, was stepping up a project to create a handheld translation device that would automate the role of the interpreter. So, you know, as usual, DARPA was way ahead of its time doing very uh, advanced technological projects. And uh, essentially was recruited by the program manager 
said, hey, you know, you're, you're transitioning out. Why don't you come join us on this project? You're going to make a huge difference. And, uh, you know, having been in Iraq and seeing the massive shortage of interpreters, I thought, you know, this is probably the best way I could serve my country is to get this technology going and get it, get it up and running. So I actually transitioned out and moved right into that role at DARPA uh, for two years, probably the best two years of my life working there. And that was really post your active duty service. So you spent two years working for DARPA and now as a civilian contractor. Correct. Which then takes us, you know, getting us closer and closer to you, you know, talk a little bit about your relationship with your ancestral family in Iran. Because you did at least keep in contact with them before 9-11, would you not? Absolutely. You know, it's a, it's a very interesting story. Like I said, my family had grown up, my mother and father had grown up under the Shah of Iran and, you know, life was very good then. They uh, had a lot of relation, good relations with the USA. And uh, my father was in the U S at the time, you know, doing his doctorate. And uh, the intention was for him to finish his doctorate and go back and rejoin his family. My mom was actually still in Iran. Um, so uh, you know, the relationship with their family was always very close. Uh, it was basically torn apart by war and revolution. When the regime took over and then the Iran-Iraq war took place. So uh, my mom and dad decided to stay. My sister and I were born. And, um, you know, Persian grandmothers, like most Middle Eastern grandmothers, are obsessed with their grandchildren, did not have the opportunity to be there when we were born. So it was always you know this torn relationship between all my many uncles and aunts grandma's not just my grandma it's my grandfather then uh uncles aunts cousins so many relatives who were just so anxious to see their grandchildren uh and their you know cousin niece nephew what have you um and that relationship was just really torn apart and put on hold my grandmother braved actually this war environment to get, you know, travel to the U.S. several times. When I was um, a year old, she was there. So she helped my mom raise, um, raise me and my sister. And then again, there were, there were financial difficulties because uh, the, the currency, the Iranian currency before the revolution was very strong after it plummeted. So help coming from over there back to my parents while my, my father was just, you know, in, in, uh, in doing his doctorate degree. Um, began to become more difficult. So uh, having our, my grandmother there to help my mom raise me, who was very young at the time, and, uh, you know, having two, two kids um, was vital. So we really appreciated her taking that, making that effort to make that trip in a war environment, get, you know, by herself an old lady. And she would come um, every other year. She had a green card at one point. She spent, you know, most of my childhood really raising me. So um, at the time that I made the decision to go was, you know, here she is now on her sort of deathbed. And uh, I just really felt obligated not only to see her before, you know, she left us, um, but also just because of the, you know, the love that I have for her. Uh, really, so many people in America have all their family members down the road or in the same city or just a short trip away and they take it for granted. You know, we never had that. It was always me, my dad, my father, my sisters, just our 
immediate family. So my grandmother was really the only link. She was coming to visit us in the States. And we had that concept of having relatives, of having extended family. And we would always get stories and snippets and pictures of our you know, uncles and cousins, but never did I get a chance to actually spend time with them. So I just felt like a huge part of my life was missing. And then here I have my, my grandmother, you know, in her difficult time. And uh, I just wanted to make, make her happy and, and finally meet my relatives and see the birthplace of my parents. You know, this was a part of my identity and my heritage that I had never, ever experienced. So this is so 2011, you decided, okay, you, you pulled it together. I'm going to go visit my grandmother and talk a little bit about the preparation you had to go through to do this, because again, you're carrying a U.S. passport, but Iran wouldn't let you in on the U.S. passports. So what did you have to do? Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I don't, these laws are very draconian. So the Iranians, uh, they consider you a citizen if your father, depending on where your father was born, not where you were born. So the fact that I was born outside of Iran, I'd never been to Iran, uh, didn't want citizenship there. Uh, they still required me to get a passport. I actually hired a lawyer who was in DC who had processed many visas for Iranian Americans consulted with him and he said, Hey, it's not even illegal in the under Iranian law for a, for a, someone who's foreign born to serve in the country that they were born in and have citizenship. It's a, you know, a natural thing. So you don't have anything to worry about. Um, you know, at that time, the state department threat level on Iran was actually just a level two. So it was one of those exercise, exercise increased caution sort of deals where it is right now, it's a level four, they explicitly state, do not travel. Whereas then that wasn't the case. You know, the government there was trying to welcome Iranian, American born Iranians, Iranian Americans to come. So there was all kinds of, uh, you know, media sort of political language coming out of Iran saying, hey, come and see your relatives. There's nothing going on. Don't worry about a thing. So, you know, after a lot of deliberation and consultation with my lawyers and also my, my mom and my brother were actually in Iran uh, that summer, a month before I went. And they had a great time. They said, there's nothing here for you to worry about. My relatives said there's nothing for, here for you to worry about. Again, in 2011, I had uh, gotten out of the Marine Corps in 2005. So, this, so my service was six years in the past. And it had to do with Iraq and specifically, you know, um, a certain part of Iraq. So it had nothing to do with Iran, nothing I ever did anything to do with Iran. So, you know, after this deliberation, uh, speaking with the lawyer and getting, you know, consulting with others, I made the decision to go. I, I arrived and, uh, you know, for initially for the first three weeks, there was no issues. I had a great time, got to see all my relatives. But you remember when you, you in your book, and I, I, I'll go back and forth to your book a little bit, you said something in your book about when you were walking through customs, something did kind of just light bulb for half a second and went back out. What was that light bulb for half a second? I don't want you to give up too much because I want people to buy the book and read it and go through it. And I tell you, it's a really, really, really wonderful read. Very, very quick read. Really, really good. Well done. Thank you so much for what you've done and shared. And I'm hoping I'm going to help you as much as I can to see if we can get this turned into a movie because I think it should be. No ifs, ands, or buts. However, but that light bulb went off. What was that light bulb when you went up and interacted with the customs guy the first time? Yeah, so 
you know, this very heavy set bearded guy was uh, reading passports. As soon as he saw the one that, you know, my Iranian passport, which I was forced to take, said issued in the U.S. So that caught his attention. He looked up for a, a moment, asked me where it was issued. And then I told him USA, he stamped it, I, I, I went in. Then I was on my way out, about to head out of the doors, uh, you know, meet with family. And as, right when I'm about to get out, all of a sudden, a guy in a, you know, coat, a suit type deal comes in and says, hey, hold on a second, we need you to go over here. And it was, you know, basically telling me in a way, he didn't show any ID, so it was a tense situation. Takes me over, just goes through all my things, you know, ask me a few questions, how long are you here for, where are you going, that sort of thing, and uh, and send me on my way. I mean, initially it was it was uh, a little nerve wracking, and I was concerned, but once I got out of there and you know I was on my way, it was an afterthought. And uh, you know, for the next three weeks, I was with all my relatives. I'm just an amazing family. There's so many uncles, cousins, and it's just you know the first time feeling like, hey, I'm not alone. Uh, and I got all these family members. It was a great feeling. And uh, yeah, so for three weeks that went on, I, I got to meet my grandmother, my grandfather, my uh, you know uncles, cousins, aunts, see all types of, uh, you know, attractions and, and, and Tehran. I mean, Iran is a beautiful country. So it was, it was, it was an amazing trip until the, the, the third week I was supposed to come back and uh, things got out of control. Before we talk about that, Let's talk a little bit about because there was a couple of things in the descriptions that you put in the book that that surprised me also, where you know people have the wrong impression about Iran and what Iran is and don't don't believe that there's any communities or any neighborhoods there that are you know glistening, shining examples of you know the best neighborhoods that we see in the West. Talk a little bit about that. Was that a surprise to you also? Northern, it was a surprise to me. I mean, you would think watching news and media and movies here that, uh, you know, it's uh, like a very rundown country, but there's parts in Tehran, I think, that rival Beverly Hills. Um, you know, there's a lot of old money there and a lot of uh, wealthy people, some of this regime, some from the prior regime. And some of these houses, uh, you know, are built inside of mountains and just sprawling decadent estates. So I, I was really surprised to see. I mean, I, I felt like I was in, uh, you know, some upper class place of uh, area of Los Angeles, for example, you know, at, at some point. Restaurants. I mean, it's a great time. People uh, are very um, sophisticated in, in certain parts of Tehran. They, they know how to have a good time. You would think that it's some very conservative Islamic country. Uh, I, I, I witnessed, uh, you know, parties and, and people having, a, you know, a good time that would rival, say, you know, L.A. or Miami. I mean, they, they, they do everything. There's all kinds of things to do there. There's a sprawling and, and very vibrant culture um, that, uh, that is not often talked about. And, um, and it should be. And I hope that it, it gets to that again at one point where people can, can enjoy themselves uh, freely. Well, I think, I, you know, I, I have a weird feeling that, you know, the way the world is changing right now, we will see that kind of change in the next five years or so. I, I, I don't think that, you know, you can't stop the movement of today's youth. And I think that that's where the difference is going to come in. Let me take a, uh, let me read a little something here. This is out of chapter three. Beginning of chapter three, it says, it was just after 11 a.m. on August 29th, 2011. It had rained the night before. I was staying in a second apartment my uncle owned in, maybe I'm saying this right, Farmania. 
Is that right? From Armania, Armania, yeah. Armania neighborhood. My family had arranged for me for my stay while in Iran. I had just finished a little breakfast and decided to drink some tea and watch the news. And I was started by a knock on the door. Since no visitors were expected that day, I went to the door and looked at the security camera monitor on the buzzer and phone, and, which is common in Iran, and saw no one. So I opened the door to check the hallway. And from around the corner, outside of the camera view, three men, without showing ID, they asked to come into the house. But this was not a request. This was a demand. As they stepped into the home, they are courteous but firm. Two men stand by the door, earpieces on, and, and the side of their suits were bulging out. They are the muscle. The third man, slightly older, started pacing the home, making small talk. And since the two at the door were surveilling the home, I noticed the two at the door were surveilling the home. What went through your mind right that second, Amir? You know, it was it was shock, but uh, they were very calm, so I was calm. But just confusion, shock. You know, I first time in Iran. You know, my Farsi was good, but it wasn't great. And, uh, you know, it was just abrupt. I had no idea what was going on. They just asked me, uh, you know, a few questions and then said, hey, we, uh, you know, we're from the passport uh, department. We have a few questions for you and, uh, you know, you need to come down. I asked if I call somebody and, you know, they said, no, no, no. So it was a way it was very, you know, how can we get this guy to be comfortable, but, but let them know that this is not voluntary. Wow. All right, look, I'm going to stop right there for just a second. I got to take a break and pay some bills. Let me take a little break. And you've been listening to Amir Hekmati here on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And again, the book is called Crossfire, Trapped in the U.S.-Iran Covert War. And I'm going to tell you, if you can go out and get a copy of this, you should go out and get a copy of this and really do a hard read. This is really a wonderful read of a book. And it will try, it, it'll tell you the perseverance of probably one of our bravest Marines in the last 20 years, I think. Um, we take a little break, pay some bills. We'll be back right after this. And welcome back to Let's Be Blunt with, with Mattel. And I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Our guest today is Amir Hekmati, who, for a lot of you who don't know, is probably well, one of the longest or the longest held American hostage in a foreign prison in our history that got out alive. I will say it that way. Um, you know, I, I was very blessed to have worked on a case right before you, Amir. I, uh, and I should say welcome again to, to Let's Be Blunt. But I was very fortunate to okay. work with helping uh, Sergeant Tamarisi, who uh, was a Marine who was uh, held in Mexico uh, and confined there for several months. Uh, for making a mistake uh, crossing the border with some weapons in his car. And I worked very closely with then Governor Richardson to help extricate him and help see if we could do put any pressure we could put on to help get him out. And it was literally when I was on an airplane flying from, you know, uh, right uh, this side of the uh, the Mexico border back, I think we were flying to Florida on Governor Richardson's plane that someone asked me, have you heard about Amir Hekmati? And I went, no, who's Amir Hekmati? And they said, well, he's another Marine that's being held in Iran. I went, are you kidding me? Well, what's our State Department doing? And at the time I was told, well, you know, they're they're not answering any of our questions, but they're really not doing that much. 
And I vowed right then to get involved in your, you know, debacle. I mean, this is really back January 9th, I think, um, no, in early January, we got involved. No, I'm sorry. I got involved in November of 2014 and, and really, you know, tried my best to put as much pressure on everyone and anyone that I can get pressure on to say, we are not leaving this guy behind. Stop this madness. So again, thank you for being here. And we just talked before the break about that knock on the door and your shock. But now after what, about a half hour, 20, 40 minute conversation, you realize that they wanted you to go somewhere with them, did they not? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Yeah, they did. And, and before I get into that, I just want to segue on what you had just mentioned. And I want to let you and your viewers know that um, as much as our government wants to bring our citizens home, including myself when I was there, had it not been for, uh, you know, making it important, unfortunately, you know, these are politicians, making it important for them, efforts by yourself uh, and others to get this to the level. Uh, it wasn't just me. There was a uh, Christian pastor, there was a journalist, and, you know, had, had people like you not intervened and, and, and got it to the level to make it important enough, uh, you know, for our government, I don't know that, you know, we would have been successful. And I had a, you know, death sentence originally, and then a 10-year sentence, so I could potentially still have been there. So I just want to say thank you again, and, and then to all your viewers, I know a lot of them had, um, had voiced their support as well. So making it important for decision makers in our country um, is, is essential. And that's definitely something that, that you help with. Uh, so I, as, as your question, you know, regarding the, uh, you know, the, the initial arrest. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was abrupt. It was under false pretenses. They just came in, apparently have been, alerted to me or watching me and, um, you know, came in, made the decision to tell me that I was, you know, come down for the, for, for a passport issue. And, uh, fortunately, you know, I would never uh, make it back. Now I don't have any documents to prove this, but it, around the same time as this had happened, a Iranian national in the United States, a, a man by the name of Mansoor Arbabsiar, who was indicted and arrested and convicted, for a plot to to assassinate the Saudi ambassador to the USA in Washington D.C., um, he was arrested, indicted, and it was put all over the U.S. and international media. And uh, you know, I think that sanctions were taken out on Iran, so it was definitely um, interesting the timing of how that took place, where an arrest was made in the United States, an arrest was made. Um, in Iran. Now, I, I don't have proof of the tour link. Uh, his family did start calling my family shortly after. 
saying, hey, your family needs to go and lobby the U.S. government. We need to make a deal. Mansoor for Amir. At, uh, you know, and, and I think that nobody was really entertaining that proposition because the man was, you know, indicted for assassination, whereas, you know, I was picked up for, for no other reason than extortion. But, um, you know, it's just interesting how, how those two coincided. But yeah, I was picked up, taken down to an office, and, uh, you know, it got uh, difficult from there. Yeah, and let's talk about how difficult it got from there because at one point, then this first, when they first picked you up, they put you in, they took you down, put a blindfold on you, put you in a truck that had, you know, curtains on the windows, and all you could see out of it was the front. And one of the sides that you saw was that they were taking you to Evan Prison, correct? Correct. Well, I mean, I'd never, I mean, I heard of Evan Prison. Uh, in the news, there was actually three American hikers who had been held there. So the name is infamous. Uh, I had no idea I was being taken there. I was taken initially to a, an office, asked to face the wall. A guy comes in and says, uh, what are you doing in Iran? And I said, I'm here to see family. Uh, you guys issued me a passport. So I'm here. And you know, I'm here to see family. And he just kept saying, I'm going to give you, he said, I'm going to give you a minute to think about your answer and uh i'll come back comes back and he says what are you doing here and i said i'm here to see my family and he said you messed up you made a mistake you made a big mistake he leaves and then these guards come in take me put me in a car drive me down to to evan prison blindfolds put on and i'm taken in and uh as i say in the book my world goes dark and and I should say, you know, we were we're not touching on the fact that even on this first day, you know, you try to resist a little bit, and they but they took batons to you, did they not? They did. I mean, right away. I mean, I was very adversarial and combative. I mean, it's not something that I felt uh, was was justified in any way. I mean, and growing up in America, we think we have rights, and over there, that's just not something that uh, that that you do. You don't say no. So I was not willing to go with them. And then at one point they asked me to change into these prison clothes and I refused. And, um, you know, after several refusals and warnings and threats, unfortunately, yeah, they came at me with batons and, and that wasn't, uh, wasn't fun, but you know, one, it would be the first of, of several incidents with involving batons, but, um, but yeah, I mean, eventually you just realize that, Hey, this is, this is against your will. You're, you're taken hostage. You are a hostage. And, you know, there's only so much you can resist and uh, you start to worry about your health. So, um, you know, put into the prison clothes and, uh, and put into a uh, solitary confinement cell. Well, let's let, I mean, I want to, I want to take you back and I'm sorry if I do this, I'm taking it back. And I know, you know, <clears throat> this has caused issues for you and, and, and I'm not trying to cause any additional issues for you, but Put yourself for a second in that mindset of that first day when they take you in that prison, they tell you to take your clothes off, squat, inspect you, and hand you these prison clothes, open up this door, and describe the cell. Because they open up this door to a cell that's maybe, you know, what, no more than about three meters across total, and push you in, slam the door, and don't say anything. So, I mean, if anybody who's listening to this, you understand what that would be like for you if somebody walked into your apartment, into your house, into your living room, just took you out of your home, put you in a van, covered your eyes, drive you up to a place, and I don't care if they, they drive you up to uh, um, 
Rockaway or drive you up to one of our most notorious prisons here in the United States, open up the door, walk you through. Nobody's talking to you. They've hit you five or six times in the back of your legs, in the back of your, your thighs and your kidneys with some batons, and then open up a door, push you in, pull the door shut. Boom, it's shut. I, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what would I do? What would my brain do? How would I process that information? How did you process that, Amir? Yeah, you're like me. I mean, it's horrible. It's humiliating at first. It's a shock. I, here I am, first time in this country as a guest. I've done nothing. I know what's. Go- I don't know what's going on. Uh, three weeks in, a trip was going great, and all of a sudden, I wake, open my eyes, and I'm in a cell, uh, solitary confinement cell, in in uh, Evan Prison. I mean, this came out of nowhere. Uh, but that ties in to sort of later on, you see like this is all a strategy to break the person down and get them to cooperate with a propaganda piece as part of a ongoing hostage taking campaign that really starts 1979 with the US embassy. This is something that they have perfected and they're continuing to do as we speak right now, there's a dozen or so American, British, Australian citizens who unfortunately uh, are still rotting away in, in prison. So this is an ongoing enterprise to them. It's like similar to something that a, you know, you'd think that a mafia or a cartel would do, but this is a government-sanctioned uh, um, initiative. And you know, you know this very well. You just helped Michael White, who was also a uh, fellow uh, member of the Navy, to, to, to get home after three and a half years of, of again, uh, you know, making demands Let's get an American who has some appeal, some sort of propaganda value that we can build a story around and, uh, and that we know people care about in, in the United States and are going to try to get him home, make him, uh, you know, something that we can continue to, to, to build headlines with. So that's really the intent. And this is all from the beginning is just a method to kind of get there and coming in unannounced, not telling me what's going on, hitting me with batons, putting me in solitary confinement with a light on, you know, 24 hours a day and a, and a whole host of other horrible things is all part of that process. And, and part of that process, you know, the first 20, 30 days that you were in there, they were interrogating you on a routine basis, trying to get you to admit to being a CIA spy for a while, were they not? That's what they really, their intent was trying to see if they could continue to ratchet up and up the ante. But that, that deprivation of sleep and deprivation of, and limited amount of food, you lost, what, 20 pounds in the first 20, 30 days? I, at least. I mean, uh, there was, food was like non-existent. I thought I'd get a bowl of lentils, uh, you know, a day, a little tea. Um, like I said, the light is on 24 hours a day. There's no sleep. You feel suffocated. This thing is a small closet. I've seen solitary confinement cells in the U.S. on, you know, TV and whatnot. It is nothing like that. This is a hole in the wall. So you're almost buried alive. You hear all kinds of people getting beat. There's, you know, yelling going on. No lawyer. No, I want my embassy. They laugh at you. There's insults. And they just ratchet it up, you know, until they pretty much get what they came to get. And uh, eventually with me, that was a televised false confession and a propaganda piece that they put out. And, um, and yeah, so there's really no limit. Uh, at one point I was tased 
injuring my kidney. Uh, I was hit with batons. I was uh, tied to a chair and I had um, the soles of my feet struck, which is extremely painful. Anybody knows what that involves? It's nerve centers in your, in your feet. I had all kinds of intestinal problems, the food. I had, you know, poisoning, some, some infection. The water there is just filthy. And there's, it's just a tiny solitary confinement cell. There's a hole in the ground for you to do your business, for you to use the restroom. Um, and, uh, and threats, just constant threats. You know, I would get interrogated and they just kept saying, tell us why you came to Iran. And I just keep repeating the same thing. They just keep asking the same question over and over and over again. And every time I would give them that answer, they'd say, you know what, we're just going to come back in six months. And, uh, you know, your, your hair is going to turn as white as your teeth and uh, we'll just forget about you. You know, at one point they told me that my, um, my sister had died in a car accident. And the only way that I was going to get a phone call was if I, you know, cooperated and, uh, you know, basically confessed to being a CIA agent, uh, which is, you know, the go-to, you know, accusation they do for all these Americans. Jason Rezaian is a Washington Post reporter who was charged with that, Christian pastor, uh, you know, Michael White, who recently was released, charged the same thing. It's just this ongoing charade, you know, that unfortunately has continued on and on. And, you know, I was a victim of that. You know, I was fortunate to, to uh, go to uh, Geneva with your family uh, during the um, the nuclear arms talk. And um, we had an opportunity to go by the Iranian embassy there in Switzerland and went by the embassy there. And I literally pulled a fast one by banging on the door for like 20 minutes straight. I got the guard inside to open the door and, and come up with a microphone. He said, what do you want? I said, well, I want to live this, give you this letter. And you know, I think I was banging on the door so much that he just was sick of me being out front of the door and there were cameras out there. He didn't know what to do. There was nobody inside to give him any space. So he opened up the door and actually officially received that letter from us. And I heard that that made the newspapers in Iran and they said something to you about that, did they not? They did. I mean, eventually, once I kind of got through the whole solitary phase later on, I mean, but for the first three years, I was pretty much you know, isolated 100% from the outside world. I knew nothing about your efforts and the campaign. I mean, I was in solitary for 18 months, no TV, no newspapers. And uh, only later on when I was transferred to the political prison, I got my first phone call, I think almost close around two and a half, three years into this four and a half year debacle, did I realize the campaign that was going on. So I, I actually had you know, a lot of partial information uh, but later on, I did. Yeah. I mean, and, and the letter and, you know, you being at Geneva, that got a lot of attention. And, um, you know, only because of that attention, I think, was this case elevated to the level that it got with especially President Obama at the time getting directly involved. You know, there were, there were people, there were people, there were people that were really ticked off that we did what we did, but I had to do it. I, I was, it was like the last resort. I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't get the, anybody. I couldn't catch anybody coming out of the talks to hand a letter to. So we literally went over to the embassy and literally made it look way bigger than it was. But just the noise in the street, I think drove this guard inside of there so crazy that he just wanted us to stop. And by officially taking that letter, that was almost like officially receiving correspondence that they could not deny. We had it on film that we were able to put up. 
So I think that's what really kind of helped. So, so when did you, you're there for four and a half years. Did they just come in and just say, okay, you're out. I mean, how did, how did you know you were getting released? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, every, I had pretty much given up on it because there was always an event like uh, a negotiation or, you know, John secretary Kerry at the time was going to meet with so-and-so and maybe there'd be an issue. And this is going on for four and a half, 28 years old, barely just turned 28 when I was, you know, had my life taken away from me. And four and a half years, I mean, almost one out of seven days of my life was in this, you know, dungeon, this, uh, this miserable place. So, and wait, you know, we're jumping forward. We're jumping forward rather quickly, but we should let everybody know that the first they had sentenced you to death, that was overturned. And then they gave you another trial and they sentenced you to 10 years. So you're living with this idea that you're going to have to end up being here for 10 years. I mean, it looks like the handwriting's on the wall. They're not going to let you out. You're there for 10 years. So go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, I'll tell you when I, the first week in solitary, uh, I was, I just was like, I'm not going to survive another week, you know? a month was, I'll be dead by then. I mean, it's just such a difficult experience. Anybody who's been in this situation knows. And time just, you know, you, you don't know where you find strength. It just comes from somewhere and, and you just take it one day at a time. But yeah, four and a half years for the first 18 months around the, the, the six month mark after uh, I had, had this sham court, which was like five minutes the guy just said, hey, did you serve in the military? And I said, yes. Uh, I was sentenced to death. And it, was, it wasn't even, um, I, I found out about it by, by a newspaper at Garnet Children. And um, the interrogator came in and, and said, uh, how do you feel? You got a death penalty. And I said, for what? You know, what did I do to deserve that? This, you know? And um, basically they said that because I had served as a U.S. Marine in Iraq, in an Islamic country that I was, uh, you know, waging war against God. That was my, 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 uh, my crime, so to speak. And that warranted death. But um, earlier when I had talked to that lawyer, he said, you know, going to Iran as a former member of the U.S. military is not a crime. I've processed visas for many people who've done so. So, you know, it just really was an excuse. But yeah, they had initially sentenced me to death. I was sitting in solitary at the time. I kept thinking about, man, I know I, I'm going to be hung. That's how they do it. So, I, I, you know, it was extremely difficult. It was always in the back of my, every time they'd open the door, I think this is it. Um, so it was definitely very traumatic. Uh, then about six months after that, a year into this, it got broken down to 10 years. And at first it was a relief because I'm, I'm no longer being executed. You know, there's still hope. But then the 10 years sunk in and I said, you know, wow, that's, that's a really long time, obviously. But go, initially going back, I'm thinking to myself, I cannot survive this even for a month in, in solitary. And now here, here I am looking at a death penalty and then a 10-year sentence, which eventually, you know, came to an end after four and a half years, which I had no idea was going to happen if I just kind of committed to the fact that, Hey, I'm going to spend a decade in my life. I'm going to be 38 when I get out, still have, you know, life ahead of me. And, uh, I, you know, that really was a great coping mechanism for me at one point was just to say, accept the worst. 
and this this might be helpful for anybody who's dealing with something traumatic is that our brains are wired to really cling to the best case scenario the best case scenario is that i'm going to get out the tomorrow people who are getting covid you know when that first started they want to know it's going to be done tomorrow we're all going to go back to normal sometimes accepting the worst case scenario is the most it's counterintuitive but it's actually the most relaxing thing for me was really just to focus anybody who said anything about you're going to get released soon they're going to make a deal i put that in my mind i stopped thinking about i started imagining that i was born inside of evan prison and this is all i knew and there was no other world in this and i just trained my mind to really accept that worst case scenario if anything happened before that and i got out well hey that's great but my mind was set on serving 10 years yeah, eventually the four and a half year mark, I got a call one day. They said, hey, we need you to come see the doctor. And I said, I don't have any medical appointments. And she said, hey, get your, you know, leave everything you have. Just come on down. And as soon as I got out of prison, I was escorted by some guards down to a, um, the initial solitary cell. I had to go, oh my God, I'm going back to solitary. And prosecutor was waiting there in a room with a camera. And he said, look, just ask for forgiveness right now ask the, you know, the government to forgive you and that you shouldn't have came here as a spy and we'll let you go. And I said, no, you know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, it's, you know, I'll leave when I leave. And um, I refused. And he said, okay, well, you know, go back to your cell, send me back to the cell. And then about an hour later, they came and said, get your things. You're going to the airport. So it, apparently it was like one last ditch effort. They wanted to throw another propaganda you know, angle of this. Some of the other prisoners who were released with me, apparently they did the same thing with them. Um, and then, yeah, we got into a car. I, for the first time, I met uh, Jason Zion, the Washington Post reporter, and um, Saeed also, who was also in Iran there, the Christian pastor. We we're all in one car. There was two other Americans. And uh, we got, you know, went down to the, to the airport, zoomed us down to the airport, and uh, waited there for like a, a day and a half. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was unexpected, but you know, that, that long journey that had come out of nowhere, um, yeah, it finally started to begin to come to an end. I think I was in Bulgaria when we got the word that they were letting you out. And it was really crazy because I went to a Bulgarian news station and, and jumped on the, on the air as quickly as I could to, to just, you know, scream, yeah, he finally let you out. So my brother, it's now been, you know, what? four years that you've been out, how, how are you coping? How are you dealing? How do you, you get through this every day? Yeah, you know, all the things like that we do in our day-to-day -day lives, uh, you know, working out, uh, you know, spending time with family and all those positive things in your life, you never know when they're gonna uh, be extremely useful to you. So all those things that I had before going in, to this horrible situation, like my training in the Marine Corps, uh, you know, my, my relationship with my family, my dedication to physical fitness, to working out, um, you know, my faith in God, you know, all those things kind of were a foundation for me to, to get me through those four and a half years that I many times just did not want to continue on. I didn't want to continue on living. I didn't want to continue this process. But it, it, you know, you find something as soon as you feel like you just really have nothing left and you, you have no, you're not going to be able to go any further. 
I would say you've only yet reached the beginning of what you're really capable of doing. You know, at one month into this thing, I thought I was going to be dead. And I did. And I had four and a half years. So having that and then hearing about, you know, your campaign, my family, all the people, fellow Marines that I served with going on hunger strike with me, you know, that really instilled in me, you know, a sense of, of duty to say, hey, I have to represent. I have to get through this with my head held high. If it's 10 years or 20, it's not just about me and my struggle and my wanting to give up. I have other people who are depending on me. And I didn't want to come out of there not being able to function like a lot of guys that came into that prison did. They got stuck, they got, you know, addicted to pills and they just really got so depressed to the fact that after they've gotten out, they're still not able to continue. So all those things helped me. Once I got out, definitely, you know, a process to kind of reacclimate and, um, you know, this is something that's never going to truly leave me, but, you know, I'm thankful to have my family, to have you, to have my friends, to have, you know, my, uh, my fellow Marines that I served with as, as a support network um, and just, you know, lifestyle. I, 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 people think, you know, the best thing to do if you're depressed is to turn to alcohol or turn to, and I, I've just, I've stayed away from all that. I've, I've, I've gotten into CrossFit. That's, that's really my, my passion and reading and, and uh, it's helped me through. So, you know, if I can do it, anybody can do it. You, you think that this is something that you're not going to recover from, but um, I'm, I'm happy to say that, uh, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm working, I, I, I got engaged and, uh, you know, life is good. I'm sorry. Are you still in school right now? No, no. I, I, I finished uh, my degree and um, have been, uh, been working. Uh, run my own business and, uh, and, and yeah, everything's great. Absolutely. Now, you know, I, and you don't have to go into the detail of this, the, our government did on your behalf or there was a settlement agreement or not a settlement agreement, but we definitely sued the Iranian government for having held you captive. Have you been able to get any of that uh, compensation or that's still mired in the court? No, the judgment is there. I mean, the intention with that was always just to shame that that regime and put on record that this was a false imprisonment, that this was uh, torture, there was torture involved, that they are human rights violators. Fortunately, you know, it's very difficult to collect on these sorts of judgments, but um, I was successful. The the court awarded me a $63.5 million judgment. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe one day, Iran will be held accountable and have to have to uh, pay up for that. I'm not alone. There's billions and billions of judgments, dollars and judgments uh, against the, the the regime there. Um, but it was more about just um, going on record and and shaming them and doing what I can to put the word out that they are indeed human rights violators. I did. I was in prison with web bloggers, with social activists, uh, people there who really are just asking for more transparency, asking for less corruption, asking for their rights. And I wanted that to be in the record. And that, that, that's part of the intent behind that. Um, I was also in prison with people who were career spies. They worked for the CIA. They worked for the Mossad. They had done all kinds of things uh, against the regime. So, you know, it was definitely, uh, you know, a very unique experience. But yeah, the, the lawsuit was just about getting, um, you know, my voice on record and, and being able to, to, to call them out for, for those violations. And, and 
hopefully get our, our politicians to do something so that this doesn't happen again, which it fortunately is. Um, yeah, so. Well, how would you, how would you say, would you say you're doing well now? You're doing okay. You're, you're hanging in there. You're going to do it every day. And then how about, again, I'm sure that when, you know, some nights when it's dark and quiet, this creeps back in. I could not not creep back in. Are you working at, uh, you know, trying to settle some of the PTSD issues from this or are you, you feeling fine? It's, you know, we are defined by uh, not the, the good things that happen to us, the easy things, the fun things. We're defined by the difficulties. So this is one part of my life that I've accepted that has benefited me and shaped me in many ways is it hard yes am i angry it's anger because you're getting something taken away from you imagine being in a dirty cell not being able to have your everyday freedoms for no reason at all you know and it, there's been americans who have done decades in prison and they're just now realizing that they are innocent through dna testing and what have you so yes i mean those things like anger but you know I have to, I'm thankful, I'm grateful that, that I came back, I'm healthy, and that there's always a, a positive way to look at things. You know, I've learned a lot about who I am, myself, I've gotten a lot stronger mentally, so there's been a lot of good that's come out of this, but my faith has increased, and, um, you know, this is, this is part of life. Well, you know, I could have gone through my whole life and had nothing bad happen to me, but I wouldn't have learned the lessons that I learned. Uh, at the same time, it can always be worse. There's people who have terminal diseases at my age. There's people who, Marines that I served with at 21 years old in Ramadi, Iraq, who didn't make it home or who did make it home, but don't have legs. You know, so I have all my limbs. I'm home. Uh, anybody who's dealing with any sort of difficulty know that you can do it. That's not the end of the world. And we're all gonna die someday. This life is finite. And it's not about where we end up in my view, it's about the journey and who we become, you know, the record, the memory. And I talk about this in the last part of my book is really the, the reason why I wrote this book was to fill the gaps for people who, who fought for me, so they know what I went through, but also really just to give that inspiration. These lessons that I learned shouldn't die with me. If there's any good that's going to come out, maybe that's the wisdom behind this, is that some people can read this, some people can, can look. I had Marines who have PTSD come to me and say, Amir, how, did, how are you still, you know, I'm here and I'm not able to continue on because of PTSD from combat, but you did combat and you did, the, you know, had this imprisonment. And it inspired them and many of them are doing better because of that. I, and I work with them and I'm talking with them and, um, you know, so maybe this is a blessing in disguise. I mean, you have to stay positive and, and look at the good. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just blessed. I'm, I'm blessed and grateful that I'm home. I'm able to continue on my life. Many others are not. And, uh, and, and yeah, I have to be grateful. Well, again, I'm going to tell everybody out there. The book is called Crossfire. And, again, Trapped in the U.S.-Iran Covert War. you got to go out and get a copy of this today. Amir, we're out of time, my brother, but i got to thank you so much for being here. I'm also, when we get off, I'm going to give you some information about a very interesting protocol that's just really right now starting to make its rounds, and it's going, I think, be one of the most. It's got right now a 90% efficacy rate in curing 
and ending PTSD. 90%. It's one of the most efficacious programs there is in the world. It's no drugs. It's a five-day protocol program, and I'm going to see if I can get you hooked up on that if you want. And I think you you will find it really, 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 really you know advantageous to participate. So I'll get you information about that. But I'm out of time, so I can't say thank you enough and make sure all of my listeners understand. The name is Amir Hekmati. Please go out and get a copy of the book, Crossfire Trapped in the U.S.-Iran Covert War. Thank you so much, sir. When I say thank you for your service, that's an understatement. But thank you for your service, Amir. And thank you for just sharing with us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thank you, Montel. It's always a pleasure and an honor and uh, for your time and for your friendship. And thank you for everything you're doing for veterans. And, uh, and yeah, I'd love to learn more about uh, what you're doing with, uh, with treatment. And, uh, and thank you again for your time. God bless. Sure. Thank you. Join us on the next Let's Be Blunt with Montau. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday. Yes.